central Dublin still bears the scars of the Easter Rising more than a century after the week-long rebellion ended. The damage to both Dublin and the Republican cause was extensive in the immediate aftermath of the failed Rising. 2,585 were wounded, and therefore officially listed as casualties. 447 individuals were killed, including 252 civilians, 64 rebels, 16 policemen, and 116 British soldiers. While the central portion of the city was decimated due to the close quarters fighting and the bombardment by the Helga, Amon de Valera wiped away the tears that flowed down his cheeks while he was personally thanking his volunteers for their service. He was aware of the fate that likely awaited him, telling his men, I know what is going to happen to me, but I will do my best for you. Leading the surrender, de Valera got a glimpse of what would come when he led the 3rd Battalion past a few residents of Dublin who had come out to support them. De Valera believed he was walking to the gallows. His only thought upon seeing the supporters was to bitterly wonder why they had not come out sooner to support them. He couldn't know that this small amount of support would grow into a tsunami wave that would catapult his rise to the top of the Irish political world. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon Irish politician Amon de Valera. Episode number three, his escape into politics. De Valera's rising was over, but he would build his political career on the back of the legend that would be created from his supposed role. Supporters claimed that the 3rd Battalion was the last garrison to surrender. It wasn't, and the only reason that it surrendered as late as it did was because De Valera, a continuous believer in secret society conspiracy theories, did not trust the chain of command particularly when the orders given to him were by a woman. They also claimed that he was the most senior surviving officer from the Rising. This was also false, but he would do little to cure individuals from their assumptions. Finally, supporters believed that De Valera had been an extremely effective commander during the events surrounding Easter. The historical record again disputes this, De Valera continually changed his men's position without purpose, and multiple soldiers that served with him reluctantly admitted to a belief that their commanding officer suffered from a mental breakdown under the vice of pressure that was the Rising. Personality cults, however, rarely revolve around facts. The perception after the Rising that De Valera was the hero that the Irish people both needed and deserved was widespread. But he would have to survive the next few weeks in order to capitalize on any of it. Historian David McCullough, 
whose work we draw on heavily for this podcast, explains that surviving wouldn't be a problem for De Valera. His first military engagement may have been beyond his capability, but Eamon possessed the military virtue that Napoleon prized above all others. He was lucky. There was a two-day delay when they marched to the barracks where the rest of the rising prisoners were being kept. The scene that the 3rd Battalion arrived to was chaos. The British military court-martial process that was applied was hardly legal, and certainly not fair. The British rushed to identify the leaders of the rebellion, but were not willing to take the time to do any investigation. Each trial was allocated only 20 minutes. The signatures of the Rising's leaders were used as evidence against the revolutionaries. Rather than proclaiming an Irish free state, the men had signed their death sentences. There were no appeals nor access to any defense counsel. The unconditional surrender had been called on Sunday, April 29th. Four days later, on Thursday, May 3rd, Pierce, McDonough, and Thomas Clark were executed by firing squad in Kilimanham Jail. The British were not messing around. As I mentioned, De Valera's men were delayed by two days. This almost certainly saved De Valera's life. Once the third arrived at Richmond's barracks, detectives set to work to identify the leading figures. Orders were found carrying Eamon's name, and the trial was over before it began. He was sentenced to death. There were those that spoke up in Eamon's defense. His wife, whom De Valera refused to write home to despite the fact that he wrote numerous letters to friends from his time at Black Rock College, desperately attempted to elicit help from the American Embassy. Irish King's Counsel William Wiley attempted to overlook the tall Irishman when he was passing judgment upon the battalion, claiming that he was unlikely to cause any trouble in the future. Neither of these were what spared Amon de Valera from the firing squad, however. Remember how a few Dublin residents came out to support the 3rd Battalion as they marched towards their surrender? The few that had come out had now become many. The speed of the trials and the ferocity of the punishments had turned public sentiment against the British. The rising had failed to inspire turnout among the Irish people, but only temporarily. Just one day after the end of combat, Irish politician John Redman warned about the danger of public backlash if more prisoners were shot. The British failed to heed the warning, and rumors began to spread of a massive number of blindfolds and white card targets being produced, even that mass graves were being prepared. Leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, John Dillon, stated that what is poisoning the mind of Ireland and rapidly poisoning it is the secrecy of these trials and the continuance of these executions. General Maxwell succumbed to political pressure and stopped the executions, but only after James Connolly and Sean MacDierma was shot. Both men had jumped the line. De Valera had been scheduled for execution next. 
Although his execution was stayed, De Valera still faced life imprisonment and was initially placed at Dartmoor Prison. Incarceration served to create De Valera rather than break him. At one point, he remembers a Latin phrase flashing across his mind which captures the thought that perhaps this will be a pleasure to look back on one day. Although they were subjected to a normal intake process involving a strip search and placement next to murderers and rapists, Eamon maintained his military discipline, just as he did with the Irish Volunteers Convict Q-95, as he was labeled, would establish himself as a leader of the Republican prisoners of Dartmoor. This began on May 30th, when De Valera witnessed the prisoner Owen McNeil coming down the stairwell. Despite the requirement of absolute silence among the prisoners, a unique form of British-inspired torture, De Valera stepped out of line, called his fellow prisoners to attention, as if it were a military parade. He then instructed them to salute their former chief of staff by giving the order of eyes left. This moment singled out De Valera, restored the prisoner's self-respect, and reminded them of their own military discipline. The prisoners of Dartmoor began requesting books, ones regarding higher applied mathematics for Eamon, and began teaching each other whenever given the opportunity. A lot of what was taught was the Irish language. The British noted the unique behavior among those assigned to Dartmoor. The Republican prisoners that had been randomly assigned to Portland did not make a single such request. De Valera was transferred to multiple prisons over the course of the next year. The varying prison conditions, most didn't have heat, did nothing to dampen the extremism that had been awakened within him. Perhaps the best example was when his two oldest children visited him while in Mountjoy Prison. His five-year-old son, Vivian, pulled his toy gun out during the visitation. His father quietly advised him, keep it and use it when the time comes. Having tasted leadership during the Rising, De Valera discovered that he was both good at it and that he liked it. His main goal seemed to be the achievement of a declaration of prisoners of war. Such a declaration would suggest that the Rising was a legitimate war act between two different entities, an odd way of achieving admission from the British that Ireland was a free state. He organized work slowdowns while in prison as well as hunger strikes. After the right to mass had been removed, he ordered the men to begin breaking up their cells, destroying their furniture and mattresses. When the British removed all furniture, the rising prisoners began to tear apart the walls of their cells. Splitting up the men only inspired similar behavior across all of the prisons, but it was clear who the inspirational leader had been. For Eamon, life imprisonment only lasted for one year. On June 5, 1917, the British House of Commons was informed that all of the prisoners from the Rising were being amnestied. The Irish Convention was opening in Dublin and was designed to restart the path towards Home Rule. 
Releasing the prisoners was an English attempt to earn the goodwill of the Irish people at the onset of negotiations. From the moment of release, it was clear that de Valera was the leader of the Republican prisoners. Receiving third-class tickets home, he marched the prisoners into the first-class section in order to witness their return to the Irish shore. Once the boat arrived, he held his men back for everyone else to disembark, before then leading a military march down the gangway for a crowd that was going wild in support. He was even offered his old position in charge of the 3rd Battalion, but declined by stating that his next move would be in the political world. Prison Changed De Valera In his own words, he went from a man that had trouble making decisions to one who became infatuated with others following his decisions. With this attitude change came the charge of being an autocrat, which would follow de Valera for the rest of his life. Amon de Valera, a man who reportedly said, I know nothing of politics and I do not like them, became the Sinn Féin candidate for an open seat in the Dáil in Clare County. Sinn Féin was an Irish political party founded in 1905 by Arthur Griffith. The term in Irish means, we ourselves. The party was focused on both Irish republicanism and democratic socialist principles. While the party backed him and provided campaign funds, de Valera's win was due largely to a poor campaign by his opponent and the intense popularity of Eamon at this precise moment. On June 22nd, de Valera finally decided to stop by his home. His carriage was stopped along the way by a crowd that unhooked his horse and proceeded to have it drawn the rest of the way home by his supporters. As far as the campaign went, de Valera took a little bit of time to get his feet underneath himself. His speeches were entirely about the week of the rising and his uncle had to prompt him regularly to state his policies. His opponent was Paddy Lynch of the majority Irish party. He stood for continuing constitutional ties to Britain, while de Valera made it abundantly clear that he stood for a complete break and the establishment of an Irish republic. Eamon won with 5,010 votes to Lynch's 2,035. Although it was just one seat for a special election, it felt as though it had national implications. The Irish Times dramatically claimed the next day that East Clare had voted for a program of revolution. De Valera outworked his opponent. Irish elections were always prone to violence by supporters. De Valera utilized the volunteers in full military regalia to drive in his supporters while simultaneously blocking lynches. In all of his campaigns, he took on a grueling speaking and travel schedule, sometimes falling ill directly after the event concluded. In this, his first ever election, he demonstrated a knack for leaving no stone unturned, even closing down the pubs the night of the election to make sure that his supporters would get up the next day and be able to remember who they had agreed to vote for. 
After his victory, he was added to the National Council of Sinn Féin, as well as belatedly co-opted onto the executive board of the Irish Volunteers. This moment then served as the moment that Republicans unified their political and military messages. Unofficially, he was regarded as the public face and leader of the released rising prisoners. His ever-growing star was one that attracted attention. His speeches, oftentimes delivered in full military uniform, included violent, seditious calls for rebellion, and at least one attack on a British military barrack was inspired by a de Valera speech. The British viewed his election to the doll as a gain for the disloyal movement. England worried that action against de Valera would turn him into a martyr, but they still took action by attempting to arrest him on August 15th. It was only an attempt, because the detective that was sent to make the arrest tipped off de Valera, who promptly vanished. Not wanting to make him seem like an even bigger deal than he already was, the British cancelled the arrest order and went back to trying to discredit him by attacking the questionable facts surrounding his birth. In October of 1917, de Valera challenged Sinn Féin's originator for control of the party. He was blunt behind the scenes, revealing to Arthur Griffith that 100% of the support of the volunteers would go for him, and that he should save himself the embarrassment of being defeated in a public vote. Griffith withdrew and endorsed de Valera, saying that he is 12 years younger than I am, he is a man whose sincerity and courage and determination you all know, but I know more about him than that from recent experience. I know that he is a man of cool judgment, in whose judgment I have absolute confidence. The role of party leader meant that de Valera represented all of Sinn Féin, a small but rising political party, the clear face of Irish advanced nationalism, necessitating more time away from home, leaving Sinead to raise the kids by herself. Their Catholic family was growing, and now up to four children under the age of seven. Eamon spent each weekday in the head office, and each weekend was devoted to public speaking engagements. Little could stop de Valera once he threw himself towards a task. In Ballyhooley, an accident disabled his car, so he borrowed a bicycle and cycled the last 10 kilometers in order to make it to his engagement. Becoming the official head of Sinn Féin granted him enough power to ask to be removed from his Irish Republican Brotherhood oath that he had forcibly taken before the Rising. The oath to a shadowy organization had always made him uncomfortable and Michael Collins, the secondary face of Sinn Féin, vouched for Eamon, saying that he would never hurt the IRB, oath or no oath. Despite the feeling that de Valera's election win had signaled a national change headwind for Sinn Féin, the next few by-elections, that is, individual special elections, went against the party. But these elections were held in Ulster, the seat of power for the northern provinces that were decidedly pro-British. 
the Irish party started to put up a better fight, literally. Redmond supporters made it clear that no man could walk out carrying a Sinn Féin emblem without being almost beaten to death in Ulster. De Valera found this out personally after canvassing for votes in Waterford. Fortunately for him, the only casualty of the attack was his hat, after four volunteers intervened on his behalf. With his shine starting to fade, fate once again intervened on Eamon's behalf. On March 21, 1918, the Germans launched their spring offensive. The Bolshevik Revolution took Russia out of World War I and allowed over a million troops to shift to Germany's Eastern Front. Prior to this moment, England stayed away from attempting to conscript the Irish to the war effort. British Prime Minister Lloyd George had worried that conscription could lead to a political rupture with America, disrupt vital food exports, as well as provide propaganda for the nationalists. With the German advance breathing down the king's neck, however, Lloyd ordered conscription efforts in Ireland to move forward. The ironically named Lord French a Brit born of Irish descent, was in charge of rounding up enough Irish to prevent the Germans from breaking through the lines in France. He quickly found out that conscripting Irishmen is about as easy as herding cats. He attempted to round them up at the point of a bayonet and even planned airstrikes to subdue growing resistance. The effort to recruit Irishmen had a negative effect on the war effort. They hit one-fifth of their target, but had to increase British forces in Ireland by 75,000 to do so. The lack of recruits might not have been the worst-case scenario. As one British officer pointedly said, Irishmen? You might as well recruit Germans to fight for us. The Nationalists' reaction was expected. Sinn Féiner, Calhall Brua, even put in motion a plan to assassinate British cabinet members as a form of protest. De Valera positioned Sinn Féin squarely against conscription, telling Irishmen that it was a question of whether you would rather be killed in France or at home, fighting for your country. Seeking to remove the head of the snake in order to move forward with conscription, De Valera, Arthur Griffith, and other prominent members of Sinn Féin were arrested and jailed in London for what was known as the German Plot. It would not prove to be the political victory that England thought it was. Sinn Féin had been tipped off about the impending arrests and chose to allow some of their leaders to be taken as a form of propaganda against the empire. De Valera, who had only been freed from imprisonment for 11 months, decided that he should be one of those that were arrested. His wife, Sinead, was six months pregnant, and Aymer would be their second child that was born while her husband was imprisoned. This imprisonment would be particularly difficult for her, as Ireland was ravaged by the Spanish flu. Sinead had to personally nurse all of her children as the family came down with the highly contagious and deadly flu. 
Her family was lucky, however, as more than 20,000 Irishmen died in the pandemic. The German plot, the unfounded conspiracy theory, posited that Sinn Féin was planning a second Easter Rising, once again with the help of Germany. Most of the evidence relied on pre-rising contacts between Sinn Féin leaders and Germany. The full election of the Dáil, the Irish Congress, occurred with de Valera, the head of Sinn Féin, in Lincoln Jail. The electorate had undergone drastic changes since the last full election eight years prior. All men over the age of 21 were now eligible to vote, as well as women over the age of 30 who were married to eligible voters. This significantly expanded the electorate from 698,000 to 1.9 million. With the conscription crisis ongoing, Sinn Féin dominated the election taking 73 seats compared to 22 for the Unionist pro-Britain party and only six for the formerly mighty Irish party. Contributing to the size of the victory was the decision for the National Labour Party to not run any candidates in order to let the country decide once and for all which side of the political aisle it was on. The Labour Party and Sinn Féin were oftentimes competing for seats with each other, as both held democratic socialist pro-Labour beliefs. As the head of the party, de Valera was set to be the next head of the Dáil. But at the moment, he was stuck in prison, in England. I only say for the moment, because he was about to make a break for it. Sick of rotting behind bars, de Valera planned a daring prison escape. Using his keen power of significantly less than perfect eyesight, the glasses-wearing de Valera realized that the entire prison was designed to be unlocked by one single key. De Valera, a devout Catholic, took a job in prison as an altar boy and managed to take a wax imprint using melted church candles of the chaplain's key. Fully aware that all of their messages outside of the prison walls were being closely monitored, de Valera made a joke Christmas card that included the exact dimensions of the key. The card was mostly nonsensical, with the slogans of 1917, he can't get in, and 1918, he can't get out. It somehow passed through security. It took a number of operatives in Sinn Féin to figure it out, but they made a key with the dimensions of the card and smuggled it into the prison in, you guessed it, a birthday cake. Suspicious of all packages, the cake was stabbed by the prison head, but made it to the inmates intact. Unfortunately, when they attempted to use the key, it broke as they tried to turn the lock. So they sent another message, received another birthday cake surprise, which once again contained a key that was not strong enough to turn the lock. This happened a third time as well. The fourth time, those outside decided to send two unmade blank keys. De Valera then enlisted the help of Peter Lockery who happened to be a locked-up locksmith, 
despite clear limitations because they were inside of prison, Lockery managed to make a key with only a file, and this one worked. Coordinating with Sinn Féin for pickup, three men made a daring escape from Lincoln Prison by unlocking their cells and walking out of an unguarded side door. Michael Collins was there to pick up the three men and bring them back to Ireland. Collins had taken the reign of the party during the German plot and had handled himself wonderfully. That night, however, he had to be chastised by de Valera, who scolded him for putting himself in jeopardy of arrest if they were caught. After being belittled, Collins had to convince Eamon to return to Ireland. During this prison stint, De Valera had decided that his next course of action would be to travel to America rather than home to take his seat in the doll. The prison break was an international moment. Rumors of De Valera being spotted sprung up in Scotland, Spain, and even Beijing. Some in Ireland reported that he was killed in the escape. The truth was a lot less exciting. De Valera avoided a week-long manhunt and was smuggled back to Dublin aboard a boat that set sail from Liverpool on February 20th. Equally less exciting was the timing of the escape. The Spanish flu had begun to spread throughout England's prisons, and fearing bad press, on February 7th they decided to release all of the prisoners caught up in the German plot. This was four days after de Valera's dramatic nighttime escape. If he had just waited for four days, he would have been able to return home 12 days earlier than he actually did. Even though the manhunt had been called off, de Valera acted paranoid and stayed in hiding. He even skipped his father-in-law's funeral. His acceptance of the president of the doll was held on April 8th and in his presidential address, he once again reiterated his obsessive focus on establishing an Irish Republic. In his speech, he laid out a new path, using the upcoming Treaty of Versailles and the rhetoric of the American President Woodrow Wilson to assure international recognition of an independent Ireland. It probably seemed like a one-off in the moment, but de Valera went out of his way to insult the police officers of Ireland. Although they were Irish, they served as part of the occupying force for British rule. De Valera suggested that members of the police forces should be ostracized socially by the people of Ireland, going so far as to dehumanize them as unclean members of society. A formal motion for ostracization passed de Valera's cabinet, which voted unanimously. Although this is not the only date that is discussed as the starting point for what became known as Ireland's War of Independence, it is widely accepted that this formal motion escalated the violence against police. The Irish Republican Army, or IRA, under the command of Michael Collins, became the official army of the Irish Republic. The IRA raided British military barracks for guns and ambushed officers. 
In response, the British created the Black and Tans, a group of World War I veterans to serve as a new police force against the IRA. An extremely brutal escalatory tit-for-tat competition began between the Irish Republican Army and the Black and Tans. 1,400 died in the conflict. 363 of them were police personnel, and 261 were from the regular British Army. The IRA lost about 550 volunteers. Record houses were burned to the ground, trains were attacked, and Croke Park was the site of what became known as Bloody Sunday. In this horrific incident, the Royal Irish Constables, the police that were loyal to the British, entered the grounds during a Gaelic football match and shot into the crowd, killing 14. That event was a reprisal for the assassination of a group of British intelligence officers known as the Cairo Gang. For nearly the entirety of the War of Independence, Eamon de Valera was in America. He packed his bags and left for the land of his birth on June 1st, his wife's birthday. He would not return for 18 months. The plan was to influence the presidential election to manipulate the United States into throwing their support behind an Irish free state. Although allowing self-determination was a focus of the Paris Peace Conference, the lands that were freed from colonial powers were all victims of the losing side of the Great War. England had zero interest in improving the freedom of their own possessions. De Valera, known for his thriftiness, took up residence in New York's Waldorf Astoria. He connected with Irish-American supporters and began a country-wide speaking tour. His goal was to raise money through the sales of bonds. The scheme was legally dubious, but received a go-ahead from the lawyer that De Valera hired, a young New Yorker named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Wanting a snappier title than President of the Ministry of Dahl Aaron, he called himself the President of the Irish Republic, a title that he made up himself. The tour was quite a success in the portions of America with high Irish populations. He spoke to 60,000 at Boston's Fenway Park, an event which the Boston Globe called electric. The crowd yelled itself hoarse when he addressed them for 31 minutes at Chicago's Wrigley Field. 1,500 students and every member of the faculty heard him speak for an hour and a half at the Catholic University of Notre Dame. In Wisconsin, he found sympathetic ears among members of the Chippewa tribe, who made him an honorary chief. They referred to him as Nene Ongaba, meaning a dressing feather. De Valera, whose nickname had always been Chief, was truly tickled to become an honorary chief, calling it one of the greatest honors of his life. The West Coast, however, was a different story. The American Legion protested him for his pro-German stance during the war. He was heckled off the stage in Seattle, and the Irish tricolor flag was ripped off of his car in Portland. In the South, he turned to what was familiar in the region, surrounding himself on stage with other freedom fighters, including veterans of the Confederacy in their uniforms. 
His pandering in the South fell on deaf ears, as the Protestant-heavy Ku Klux Klan had already passed judgment on him because of his Catholic beliefs. It did not matter to De Valera who supported his cause, just that they supported his cause. The man was willing to talk to civil rights leaders as well as KKK members. He courted Bolsheviks and Indian nationalists while in the States. His appeal to anyone who would listen also extended to politicians. In an attempt to rig the system so that he would be the winner no matter what, De Valera decided to court both political parties. He first traveled to the Republican National Convention with the goal of adding his cause to the party platform. His proposal for recognition of an Irish Republic, however, was rejected by an 11 to 1 vote. American Irish colleagues then offered an alternative, which was passed by a 7 to 6 vote, but De Valera publicly objected to it, and the plank was never officially added to the party platform. Why did De Valera object to the compromise? In short, because it was not his proposal. This will come up a number of times and can be viewed as a massive flaw within Amon's personality. There seemed to be an obsessive need for any idea slash plan to be his plan. It was one of the reasons that so many of his contemporaries complained about his authoritarian tendencies. With De Valera, it was his way or the highway. He had a serious fear of being sidelined and viewed as a subordinate, and he did not take it well when his ideas were rejected while others were accepted, even if the difference between the two proposals was small. Having failed with the Republicans, he turned his attention to the Democrats, but once again he left without any substantial change to the party's public agenda. He did manage to succeed with the Farmer Labor Party. But this was a complete waste of time, as the party only managed to achieve 1% of the final vote. Defeated, De Valera announced that he was coming home, stating, I can plainly see that if we get deep into American politics, we will be skinned, so keep clear. The bond drive had been a success, however, and De Valera was set to return with more than $3 million for the Republican cause. Unfortunately, the United States government had declared the scheme illegal, and he had to have it laundered from New York banks to priests in Ireland. By the end of 1920, only $1,000,000 made its way back to Dublin. Amon's failed political schemes had cost at least half of that. Even as he departed, there were signs that he would eventually return to America's shores breaking ties with the existing organizations that he had clashed with during his time in America, De Valera created the American Association for the Recognition of the Irish Republic, the very easy-to-remember AARIR. The new organization quickly grew to an impressive 700,000 members, a group that De Valera would turn to any time that he needed to raise funds.
In December of 1920, he was smuggled back into Ireland, even though Britain was no longer trying to arrest him. In fact, the British were happy to see him return, as they felt he was a more moderating force than Michael Collins, who was personally directing the IRA raids. Coincidentally, the same day that he arrived in Dublin, December 23rd, was also the day that the Government of Ireland Act of 1920 came into effect. The Irish War for Independence had taken a secretarian feel, with the six counties in the north that were loyal to Britain committing some of the worst atrocities against the IRA. The Government of Ireland Act was a fourth home rule bill, but this one created a legal separation between the 26 southern provinces and the six loyal northern provinces. This act would set the stage for permanent division of the island of Ireland, and therefore was massively opposed by Sinn Féin. For the first five weeks back, de Valera never returned home to see his wife or his five children. He continued to assume that he was under imminent threat of arrest. He was critical of the operations that Michael Collins had led, stating that the guerrilla war tactics were going too fast. The odd shooting of a policeman here and there is having a very bad effect on us from the propaganda point of view in America, he said. What we want is one good battle about once a month, with about 500 men on each side. Showcasing once again his desire to suppress any perceived threats to his authority, Amon suggested that the American trip was so successful that next Michael Collins should go. His second-in-command's refusal was ultimately a good decision, as de Valera was forced to rely on him as the public face of the government. His decision to hide underground to avoid an arrest ultimately resulted in his arrest. At the time, he was staying at a safe house that was unknown to the IRA. When their neighbors were arrested as sympathizers, the police came next door to alert the neighbors of the investigation. Once there, the police quickly recognized that they had stumbled upon a high-value target because of the documents that were spread out all over the living room. De Valera was discovered by the officers sitting on a bench, teaching someone Irish. But the best part of the story comes with the fact that he told the officers that his name was Sankey. Ironically, if he had given his real name to the officers, he wouldn't have been arrested. He was released the next day and shortly after received an invitation to engage in peace talks with Prime Minister Lloyd George. The fact that he would be able to talk directly to the head of the state was in itself a public relations victory, as it appeared to elevate de Valera to a legitimate head of state. So why was Lloyd George willing to meet, particularly without any preconditions? The most recent election in 1921 had made it clear that Sinn Féin was in charge of the southern 26 provinces. It also made clear that the Unionists were just as much in charge of Northern Ireland. The British were beginning to understand that they would have to release the majority of Ireland. It was now about holding on to as much of it as they could. 
a three-hour meeting was held between representatives of England, De Valera, and Unionist President James Craig, representing a true who's who in the Irish War for Independence. There was no surrender of arms, another political victory for Sinn Féin, as it meant that the British saw them as a legitimate combatant force, and not the murder gang that they had painted them as. The truce was met joyfully across the island, with tens of thousands day-trippers traveling to the seaside for the first time since the conflict had begun. Prior to this, there were fears of being caught in the crossfire of an ambush. The exact terms of the ceasefire had been offered six months prior, but de Valera had insisted on being personally involved in the talks. Remember that it is not a good deal until it was his deal. The negotiations are an interesting study in and of themselves. De Valera was involved in most of them, but not all. He selected a group of negotiators and empowered them to do the work to create a treaty that would aid Ireland in its struggle for independence. There are multiple interviews on the record that indicate both that de Valera never expected them to agree to anything without his prior approval, and that he was setting them up as scapegoats for what he assumed was going to inevitably be a failure. The two leaders of Parliament met one-on-one -on -one first. Lloyd George was known as an elite negotiator, in fact, he had been the deciding vote on nearly every provision of the Treaty of Versailles, a treaty that at this moment in time was considered to be a tremendous success. In those negotiations, George was said to have brokered a truce between Jesus Christ, played by Woodrow Wilson, and Napoleon, played by the French Premier. Lloyd had no idea what he was up against in Amon de Valera, however, David McCullough describes Lloyd's initial feint. He first turned on the charm by offering his guests a cigar and a drink. Both were refused, before attempting to overawe him by pointing out all the red of the British Empire on a map hanging on the wall of the cabinet room, contrasting this with Ireland, which he was able to cover with the end of his fountain pen. Next, he tried flattery, pointing out the chairs around the cabinet table, naming the Dominion leader who occupied each, before falling silent as he came to the last one. Dev refused to play the game and avoided taking the bait, forcing Lloyd George to have to explain that the final chair was reserved for Ireland. According to De Valera, Lloyd George's play-acting was so bad that it couldn't have deceived a child. These negotiations would play out over months, rather than days. De Valera will have a number of famous negotiations, which allow us to examine his methods in depth. It doesn't require too much sophistication to see why he won more sessions than he lost. First, he was absolutely stubborn as can be. He always circled back to his original idea, rarely ever willing to back up even an inch. Secondly, if you did not like his idea, then he would talk to you until you liked it, or until you gave in just to get him to shut up. Lloyd George's initial offer was surprisingly really good for Ireland. 
It would give Ireland dominion status with power over taxation, finance, justice, home defense, and policing. However, the Royal Navy would control the seas around Ireland, have unlimited access to critical Irish ports, England would retain facilities necessary for military and civil aviation, limitations on the size of an Irish army, the continuation of British military recruitment in Ireland, free trade agreements between Ireland and Britain, and that the Irish people would take on a share of Britain's war debt. You know the deal is good when Sir Henry Wilson of England wrote that the offer was an abject surrender to murderers. It gives complete independence under the guise of Dominion Home Rule. In short, Ireland is gone. As usual, de Valera did not see eye to eye with the British. They debated the offer until 3 a.m., before deciding that it would be treasonous to even bring this offer back to the people of Ireland. His personal negotiators were split. Arthur Griffith was more than content to accept the deal as is. But Brua, the guy that encouraged the assassination of British cabinet members, represented more extreme viewpoints. This was where de Valera loved to be. Two extremes in need of a compromise that he would come up with. Amon began becoming obsessed with the term external association. He proposed that Ireland become an independent republic that had an external association with England and all of its dominions. This would rid them of having to serve beneath the King of England and swear allegiance to him, while still choosing to work with him voluntarily all the time. His preferred method of explaining the concept was to draw a large circle containing five other circles. He then drew another circle that adjoined the large one. The biggest circle was the Commonwealth, with its dominions such as Canada and Australia within it. The second circle, tangentially attached to the Commonwealth, would be Ireland. Don't forget that if you disagreed with this idea, de Valera would just start his explanation over again. Michael Collins later complained, how could one argue with a man who is always drawing lines and circles to explain his position? I told you before that de Valera sticks to his idea and does not like to budge from it. Although the story we are discussing is set in 1921, De Valera continued to use his circle diagram to explain the concept of external association as late as 1969, more than 40 years after Irish independence had been achieved. De Valera had settled on the idea of external association as the solution, but did not want to insert it at this point in the negotiations. Instead, he reserved it as a fallback position. The response he advanced instead was a demand for either a united Ireland with dominion status that included absolutely no limitations, or complete independence for Southern Ireland. Lloyd George, in Paris at this moment, began to prepare for a resumption in hostilities. His escalation tactics would include the declaration of martial law, the division of the country into multiple sections rather than just northern and southern, seizing control of food production, and the introduction of mandatory identity cards. 
On August 26, De Valera was nominated for re-election in the Dáil, and a title was added as President of the Republic. Waiting two minutes before the deadline for the last offer's expiration, De Valera notified Lloyd George that the Dáil had unanimously rejected the British proposals. Furthermore, in November, he announced the creation of a new Irish National Army. It was a far less clever move than he believed, as it was transparent when he attempted to place his own loyalists in charge of the new Irish National Army, rather than Collins' experienced men from the IRA. The British attempted to handle these setbacks with grace, and sought to reopen formal negotiations with feelings of goodwill. To establish that, the British monarch King George V published an exchange of telegrams between himself and the Catholic Pope Benedict XV. The point of the exchange was to indicate that both the king and the pope's wishes that the divorce between England and Ireland would go smoothly and without incident. De Valera, though, flipped out when he saw a portion of the telegram that indicated that the king was speaking on their behalf. De Valera fired off a telegram to the Pope, thanking him on behalf of the Irish people, who are confident that the ambiguities and the reply sent in the name of King George will not mislead you, as it may the uninformed into believing that the troubles are in Ireland or that the people of Ireland owe allegiance to the British King. Lloyd George stepped into this PR nightmare with another solid offer. He proposed that Ireland would be a self-governing dominion with the same relationship to Westminster as Canada, that the British Navy would defend the Irish coast pending an arrangement between the British and Irish naval forces, while Britain would still retain air and naval military bases. Lastly, the dominion would be for all provinces unless the Parliament of Northern Ireland decided to opt out in which case a boundary commission would be established to partition Northern Ireland from the rest. As the negotiations went on, they even budged further, allowing the Irish to put in any phrase that would ensure that the Crown had no more power than it did in Canada. He offered to modify the proposed allegiance oath and agreed that any British official placed in Ireland in an official capacity would never be placed if there was an Irish objection. It took six weeks to get these concessions, at which point the Union leader of the North, James Craig, arrived, and de Valera oddly left to attend to local political matters in Clare County. He did receive updates from the negotiations team, and even delivered a suggested oath amendment that he was willing to support. It read, I do solemnly swear true faith and allegiance to the Constitution of the Irish Free State to the Treaty of Association, and to recognize the King of Great Britain as head of the Associated States. External association was clearly still circling his mind. Unknown to de Valera, he was not the only one looking at the treaty. Remember that Eamon oftentimes blamed secret societies for any setback in his life. Occasionally, however, he was right. Michael Collins had leaked the treaty to the Secretary of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. 
It was subsequently placed in front of the Supreme Council and was largely met with approval. In Michael Collins's mind, the treaty would grant Ireland the right to eventually become free. De Valera appeared ready to risk a resumption of war over the difference between external association and dominion status. It appears that his negotiations team, however, wasn't. At 2.20 a.m. on Tuesday, December 6, 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed by Lloyd George in his offices at 10 Downing Street. De Valera was neither there nor aware that his negotiations team accepted a deal. Once informed, he was described as in a state of despondent, towering rage. He couldn't even get past the first three clauses to read the whole document. Once again, the final deal had been better than expected. The negotiators had managed to remove the oath that required members of Parliament to swear true faith and allegiance to the Crown. Instead, they now swore to the constitution of the Irish Free State. However, they still had to swear fidelity to the king. In the talks about the treaty, O'Sullivan observed that a man getting married promises to be faithful to his wife, which is a very different thing from owing allegiance to her. One of his colleagues advised him to wait to put that on the record until after he gets married and experiences the difference himself. De Valera thought that it was the worst document ever. Again, he didn't create it. Historian Ronan Fanning goes so far as to claim that De Valera opposed the treaty not because it was a compromise, but because it was not his compromise, nor one that he had authorized in advance. The cat was out of the bag. Newspapers across the country published the treaty as well as reports of congratulations on the birth of their nation from leaders across the world. De Valera responded with a personal editorial that explained that they had rejected the treaty that everyone was celebrating. He believed that this would be the case, as the next step in ratification was for the cabinet to vote. Eamon was sure that he had the four votes needed to sink the treaty, but he was betrayed by W.T. Cosgrave who took this moment to show his pragmatic side in voting for the treaty. Failing to stop the Anglo-Irish Treaty in the press and the cabinet, he then turned to the doll. He began the debate with verbal trickery. Speaking in Irish, he said his grasp of the language wasn't good enough for the purposes of the discussion, and so he would continue in English. He then said in English that he was using the language because some of the members do not know Irish, I think. He was desperately trying to find a compromise that would preserve his idea of unity, or at least unity in his vision. Throughout his career, De Valera would pretend that he was a reluctant leader regularly claiming that he hated politics and longed to retire to a private life where he would once again teach math to students. His actions always proved this to be a lie. The debate in the doll saw de Valera delivering one of his most impassioned and impressive speeches. Michael Collins, however, spoke next and matched him argument for argument. 
The doll resumed on January 3rd to finish a debate that had begun in December. Finally, Eamon played his last trump card, telling everyone in the doll that if they passed the treaty, he would have to resign as their leader. He gave one of his most authoritarian speeches at this moment, suggesting that only he knew the actual will of the Irish people, expressing that I have been brought up amongst the Irish people. I was reared in a laborer's cottage here in Ireland. I have not lived solely amongst the intellectuals. The last 15 years of my life that formed my character were lived amongst the Irish people down in Limerick. Therefore, I know what I am talking about. And whenever I wanted to know what the Irish people wanted, I had only to examine my own heart, and it told me straight off what the Irish people wanted. The New York Times referred to this threat to resign as that of a hysterical schoolgirl, reporting that de Valera said, I am sick and tired of politics, so sick that no matter what happens I would go back to private life. What is sickening me most is that I got in this house and the same sort of feeling that I was accustomed to over in America. I am straight with everyone, and I am not a person for political trickery. If there is a straight vote in this house, I will be quite satisfied if it is within 48 hours. That vote came, and Amon de Valera lost. The treaty was approved by a vote of 64 to 57. Upon hearing the result, Amon de Valera rose to address the doll, stating that, it will, of course, be my duty to resign my office as chief executive. I do not know whether or not I should do it now. Far from retiring to a classroom, by that same afternoon, de Valera would throw his name in as his own replacement, telling the doll that if they re-elected him as leader, he would not stand in the way of implementing the treaty. He would, however, fire the cabinet that voted against him and replace them with men he could work with. In effect, it would place the implementation of the treaty in the hands of men who hated it. He lost this second big vote of the day by only two votes, including his own, as he decided to abstain from voting for himself. Arthur Griffith was elected and resumed his original role as the leader of Sinn Féin. The decision descended into anarchy, with insults of deserters, oath-breakers, cowards, foreigners, Americans, English, and Lloyd Georgites were thrown across the aisle of what had been a united Sinn Féin. On February 21st, at de Valera's urging, Sinn Féin would split in two over the issue of the treaty. Ireland had received the ability to become independent, but the fight between the pro-treaty and anti-treaty forces would quickly descend into what would become the Irish Civil War. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.